Welcome to our Didache Divine Service this December 21st. It's appropriate, this 12th session, we are one behind, but we meet next week, and then after that we'll be back on our schedule. But today is also the Feast of St. Thomas, and the appointed reading in the congregation at prayer from John 20 has the resurrected Lord Jesus appearing to him and Thomas touching his body, the wounds in his hands and side, and then he confesses, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So here today we focus on the resurrection. And uh, does everyone have a white handout? That will be good because I will stick closely to that today. Our opening hymn is 458. We are only going to sing stanzas 7, but I'll use a little bit of catechesis on stanzas 1 and 6 uh, to review. Let us begin first with prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God the Father, through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, you have overcome death and open the gate of everlasting life to us. Grant that we who celebrate with joy the day of our Lord's resurrection may be raised from the death of sin by your life-giving spirit. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Part of the burden of today's lesson is to hold forth the notion that sin is the cause of death. Therefore, when Jesus suffers and dies upon the cross in our stead, in the flesh, his death becomes the fountain and source of life. It could be said this way, the cause of Jesus' resurrection bodily from the dead is his death because his death took away the problem of sin, which is the cause of death and separation from God. So by his death, he then reconciles us to the Father. So hymn 458 draws upon all the many themes we have talked about from the Old Testament. All of those bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Jesus. The book of Leviticus says the life is in the blood. So when the blood is poured forth, the life is being sacrificed in order to redeem, make atonement for sin, payment, and reconcile us to God. So it begins by saying Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands for our offenses given. But now at God's right hand he stands and brings us life from heaven. Notice we've got crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension all in those opening words. Therefore, let us joyful be and sing to God right thankfully. Loud songs of Alleluia, Alleluia. No son of man could conquer death. A theme we'll see in the Mark 16 reading. Who will roll away the stone? Such ruin sin had wrought us. Again, the emphasis, sin is what brought the ruin of death. No innocence was found on earth, and therefore 
death had brought us into bondage from of old and ever grew more strong and bold and held us as its captive. Christ Jesus, God's own Son, came down, his people to deliver. Destroying sin, he took the crown from death's pale brow forever. Again, you see the linkage. Sin is the cause of death. Stripped of power, no more it reigns, that is death. An empty form alone remains. It's why Christians refer to their deaths as nothing worse than a sleep. Its sting, the sting of death, is lost forever. It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death contended. That's speaking about the cross. The victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended. Holy Scripture plainly saith that death is swallowed up by death. See, death, caused by sin, is swallowed up by the death of Christ who made atonement for sin. Its sting is lost forever. Stanza 5 is one of my favorite ones as it it links together the Old Testament Passover, the shedding of the Passover lamb's blood which brought about the delivery from slavery in Egypt to Jesus as the true Passover lamb whose blood set us free from the bondage to sin, death, and Satan. So here in Christ, our true Paschal lamb we see whom God so freely gave us. He died on the accursed tree, so strong his love to save us. See, his blood now marks our door. Notice how that, those of you know the Old Testament Passover, the blood is put on the doorposts and on the lintels covering everyone in the house. So faith, our faith as Christians, looks to the blood of Christ. Remember last week in the St. John Passion, They beheld the pierced side of Jesus. They shall look on him whom they have pierced. That is the posture of faith, to look upon him whom they have pierced. So see, his blood now marks our door. Faith points to it. Death passes o'er, and Satan cannot harm us. Hallelujah. So let us keep the festival to which the Lord invites us, Christ is himself the joy of all, the sun that warms and lights us. Now his grace to us imparts eternal sunshine to our hearts. The night of sin is ended. Alleluia. Now we'll sing stanza seven, but before we do, Jesus fulfilled the totality of God's law. Ultimately, in his love for the Father, which resulted in his perfect love for us, in the laying down of his life upon the cross. It is why then Christians worshipped and began to worship from the beginning of the apostolic era on Sunday. Sunday was the first day of the week. Sunday was the day of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. So every Sunday becomes a celebration of the resurrection. And what this hymn of Luther's, and this is Martin Luther's, one of the greatest Easter hymns ever written, what the hymn of Luther does is link together inseparably the crucifixion and the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead precisely because his crucifixion made atonement for sin, the very cause of death. And so in stanza seven, 
Let us feast this Easter day. Anytime we receive the Lord's forgiving word and eat of his body and drink of his blood, the Lord's Supper is a promise and pledge and guarantee to the faithful of our bodily resurrection from the dead. And Luther and the ancients call it also the medicine of immortality and that it actually has medicinal benefits already in this life. So, then let us feast this Easter day. Then let us feast this Easter day on Christ the bread of heaven. The word of grace has purged away the old and evil leaven. Christ alone our souls will feed. He is our meat and drink indeed. Faith lives upon no All right. If you'll turn in your Lutheran Catechesis book to page 313, I want to, as a part of our review, um, touch upon briefly those terms that were listed there under the crucifixion. So, better to have the text uh, before you. Pontius Pilate, we noted, is the Roman governor under whose authority Jesus was crucified. Pilate, we noted last week, you could say, as the civil ruler and judge spoke in the stead and by the command of God declaring great truths. I find no fault in him, the innocent man, who is the Christ, the Son of God. And so the historicity of our Lord's death, and then leading today into the resurrection, is emphasized in the creed uh, under the designation about conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary and then crucified under Pontius Pilate. Lamb of God, the Latin for that is Agnus Dei. And at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, inaugurated by his baptism, John then begins to proclaim him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We will revisit that account when we have our discussion on baptism. At Jesus' baptism, he who is declared innocent by Pontius Pilate has the sin of the world imputed to him. Like in the Old Testament, the high priest would impute the sins of the congregation upon the scapegoat. And then that scapegoat would be driven out into the wilderness what happens after Jesus' baptism, he is driven into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So all of these things show him to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But this Lamb of God is the title that names Jesus the sacrifice for all sin, whose blood was shed to propitiate or satisfy God's wrath. And it designates him to be the fulfillment of all the bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament. So John, at the baptism of Jesus, and at the beginning of John's gospel, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then at the end of St. John's gospel, in the Passion, you see the blood and water pouring forth from the side of the Lamb of God to make atonement for sin. 
Redemption, vicarious atonement, blessed exchange, and the righteousness of God are all complicated sounding terms which in many cases are synonyms. There's little nuances to each one. But redemption, you know, uh, uh, there was a time, I remember in Iowa, we had to take all of our cans and bottles back and then we'd redeem them, we'd get our five cents or whatever back from that. So redemption is about uh, a purchase price. So a payment uh, to purchase, in this case, release. So the work of Christ upon the cross can be called redemption. That is the payment to purchase our release from sin, death, and hell. Vicarious is a fancy word that means substitutionary. Now, probably in Lutheran catechesis, we should have put in the parentheses substitutionary payment because atonement means payment. So vicarious atonement is a substitutionary payment. That is to say, he makes the payment on our behalf. So the redemption payment he makes on our behalf, that's vicarious atonement, the satisfaction that Christ made for sin by suffering the condemnation of the law in the place of sinful man. So that substitutionary language, it's all over the Old Testament. No one of the faithful in the congregation of Israel, none of the faithful were executed for their sins. The lamb was, the oxen was, the turtle dove was. All of those were vicarious or substitutionary sacrifices. That leads to the blessed exchange. Uh, that term blessed exchange or happy exchange is... Um, it comes from Martin Luther, who described what the Gospels, St. Paul, the Old Testament speaks about how the sin of the world, this goes back to the Lamb of God again, was imputed to Christ, and then the righteousness of his death for sin was imputed to us. So in the creed's explanation in the catechism, everlasting righteousness refers to Christ. Everlasting blessedness refers to Christ. Righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. Everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness. So this is a happy exchange. He takes all my sin and all yours upon himself, and in exchange, he gives us all of his righteousness that covers us. Every white robe that a minister wears, that a choir wears in the liturgical services of the church, all signify the robe of Christ's righteousness. In the Passion last week, they divided his garments in four parts to be spread throughout the whole world through the preaching of the gospel. And then that one tunic without, woven in one piece without seam, again, signifying the righteousness of Christ. So that leads to the next term, the righteousness of God. And you can memorize this. It's my favorite phrase in all of the Bible. Dikaiu sine tu theu, which is Greek for the righteousness of God. And, and what it is, the righteousness of God, and Paul elaborates on this at great length in the book of Romans, as well as the book of Galatians. But it's talked about by Jesus uh, in what Matthew records in his gospel, to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Uh, theirs is the kingdom of the heavens. The righteousness of God is that God the Father offered up his Son 
into the death of the cross in fulfillment of the law. So you talk about righteousness, you know, some people would think of it as, okay, perfection, uh, sinlessness, uh, the complete fulfillment of the law. And you could say all of those things, but ultimately the righteousness of God, we can't do those things. The righteousness of God is that God did for us what we could not do. Remember the sacrifice of Isaac we looked at very briefly, where Isaac says to Father Abraham, Father, here's the wood and the fire. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? The Lord will provide for himself the lamb. There we go, the righteousness of God. God the Father provides what he himself demands, namely atonement for sin. All right, so that's why it's bolded there. And then uh, from last week, Jesus finished or accomplished all that the scriptures declared were necessary. It is finished, he said from the cross. Everything necessary for salvation was accomplished. And he left his mother a new relationship. You know, man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. He shows himself to be the second Adam. And his bride is his church formed from the blood and water from his side, made beautiful by the sacrifice of love for her, the washing of water and the word. That's uh, Ephesians 5. And then finally, access by the blood of Christ. This is how we have fellowship with God. This is how we are restored to holy communion. When we studied the first article of the Creed, and the creation of man in the image of the triune God of love, we noted that God wished to be in communion and fellowship with us. That's always what he wanted. The problem of sin does not deter him from wanting that communion and fellowship. He becomes man, the Son of God does, to take our death upon himself, and by the shedding of his blood, we are reconciled to God. So our access to God is through the blood of Christ. And going back to that Leviticus passage I mentioned a moment ago, the life is in the blood. The life of God is in the blood. So you want deliverance from the coronavirus? Drink of his blood. Because there's life in that blood. Eternal life. Salvation. You will recover much quicker. Now, we looked at last week the two great canticles, the Sanctus and the Agnus Dei. In the Old Testament worship life, the tabernacle first, which was portable, the temple then, which was somewhat per uh, permanent, although Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Solomon's temple. There were two chambers. There was the holy place, where the, the bread of the presence was. Sound familiar? There was the lampstand, signifying the Holy Spirit, and then there was the altar of incense where the daily sacrifices were made. Then the curtain divided that holy place where the daily uh, priestly intercessions took place from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was similar to the shape of our own altar here. And I noted last week to you that the fair linen, symbolic of the burial cloth of Christ, but also his righteousness, rests on top of the altar and has five crosses, one in each corner for his hands and his feet, and then one in the center upon which, historically in Catholic worship, Lutheran worship, 
The altar signifies Christ's sacrifice. There in the center, that fifth cross, the piercing of his side out of which blood and water flowed. In the liturgy, and you can listen for it again today, the Sanctus link together a number of stories that are all related. Holy, holy, holy was both what the children of Israel would sing or pray as the high priest went behind the curtain and offered the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. It was also what amazed Isaiah when he was called to faith because, uh, not called to faith, called to be a prophet, because he saw heaven opened and the same liturgy of the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement, he hears being sung by the antiphonal choirs of heaven. And it blows him away. And that indicates what the church has always taught, that in the divine service, in the Holy Communion, heaven and earth, the church triumphant and the church militant are joined together. We are the closest to our departed loved ones in the faith when we're here at the altar partaking of Christ's body and blood. And holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, which the whole heavenly host is singing, angels, archangels, all the company of heaven, we join in that song on earth. The Sanctus also takes Psalm 118, Save us now, Lord, Hosanna to the Son of David, which was the Passover psalm, and applies it to Jesus. So when Jesus came into Jerusalem and they sang, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they were declaring him to be the fulfillment of the Passover, the Christ, the Blessed One. So those songs come together right before the consecration of the bread and wine where the pastor says, this is my body which is given for you. There's atonement. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins or the forgiveness of sins, which is what takes away death and restores or reconciles our life with God. That's why the angels sing. It's also related to the glory in excelsis, which comes earlier on in the divine service, which we will restore then on Christmas Eve. Glory be to God on high and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Why? Because he has taken away the breach, the wall of separation, and reconciled us to himself through the blood of Christ's cross. Then after the consecration, the pastor holds the body and blood of Christ forth and says, the peace of the Lord be with you. Remember, what were the first words that Jesus said to the disciples when he met them the first time in the upper room on Easter? Peace be with you. And then he showed them his body, his hands inside. So the pastor says, peace be with you, showing forth the body and blood of Christ. You see the linkage there? And then what do we sing? O Christ, thou Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. See, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the source of resurrection and new life. Never, ever separate the cross from the resurrection. There is no resurrection from the cross. That's why for Luther, he always wanted the crucifix above the altar to make that visual, constant catechesis reminder. Death is swallowed up by death. The result is resurrection. 
Okay. Mark 16. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, should I let you turn to it? That's in your Bible, Mark 16. Okay. Uh, let me uh, introduce it then while you're turning to it. The historical event, the historical event of the bodily resurrection of Jesus takes us back to the Garden of Eden and proclaims a restoration of paradise lost. I, I, shall I use language that uh, maybe will uh, make it easy for you to grasp? The devil wanted to destroy God's good creation. The devil was envious of mankind's position in relation to God. So you can imagine the devil, I'm going to destroy it. Because the day they eat, they must die. And that's what I want. Separate them from God. Destruction. And the Lord says, not so fast. I will not allow that permanent destruction. And my love which created them in the first place, and all of creation, is going to be the same love then that moves me to make the ultimate sacrifice in the gift of my son, the son in love for his father and us, steps in the breach, becomes man, and takes our death upon himself. Okay, so not so fast. So what you have in the resurrection accounts, they're very quick. Um, in the gospels, uh, the passion is the climax in terms of rhetoric. You have Jesus on the cross, it is finished, and John testifying about the blood and water that flows forth from his side, and I've seen it, and I know that it's true. And then resurrection is of necessity the result. It's impossible for Jesus not to rise from the dead because his death took away sin. So in the account of the resurrection, and we're looking at Mark's gospel because he surveys all of the other resurrection appearances in a condensed form. We are taken back to the Garden of Eden and the proclamation of the restoration of paradise. So when the Sabbath was passed, which would be Saturday, so then it's Sunday morning, the first day of the week, think of creation. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. This great care and reverence for the, for the body goes all the way back to the patriarchs of old. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Remember, we noted biblical time in Genesis. There was evening and morning. So death and resurrection, darkness to light. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. They could not do it. So I got in our second bullet there. Who will roll away the stone? Only Christ defeated death by taking the cause of death upon himself, sin, and suffering death, separation from God in our place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because on him was laid the sin of the world. Verse 5. And entering the tomb, 
They saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. I often ask the question, how many angels were there at the resurrection of Jesus? And the answer is, more than you can count. Each evangelist emphasizes certain things, which is also part of what happens in an eyewitness account. Um, If you see an automobile accident, there may be three or four people standing on the corner, all from different vantage points, and they see different things. They're not contradictory things, but they may not all report the same thing. Okay? So uh, some of the Gospels record two angels here in Mark, one angel. But what they also report has theological significance, a focus. So in Mark's Gospel, we had the story of the rich young man. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that is God. Which means he's a sinner. He's not good. And he claims to have kept all of God's law. Jesus says, one thing you lack. Let go of everything. Or shall I say it this way? Be stripped naked from everything and follow me. Because what he needs is to use the language of the second article of catechism, Christ's everlasting righteousness, innocence, and that's what you need. When you die, your own good works ain't going to help you. Your faith must clasp Christ, his righteousness. Uh, Luther had a piece of paper in his pocket when he died. We are beggars, one and all, totally dependent upon Christ. Faith simply grasps him, his death for sins. He's my righteousness, the righteousness of God. Well, what happens in the rich young man? He goes away sad. He doesn't want to be stripped naked. And later on, in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's the young man clothed in a linen garment, snooping around, following Jesus and the disciples. And the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and they grab this young man, and they snatch his linen garment, and he runs away stark naked. Again, many, many uh, biblical scholars say this is, there's all these clues in each of the Gospels in terms of authorship, and that in Mark's Gospel, the author is that young man who first came to Jesus but went away sad, only to be stripped naked in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then when he reports on the resurrection, he just gives the figure of the one lone man, but now clothed in white. You see? Even the angels, when they're clad in white, are reflecting the righteousness of God. It's not of their own doing, but it is of God's gift. So also the reference to choir robes and minister's robes in white. So here, this is what Jesus' death accomplished. The covering of righteousness. The white robe, which is his forgiveness. So the young man, the angel, is, uh, is depicted as a young man clothed in white robe to signify how we all must be clothed in the robe of Christ's righteousness. And so a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side signifies the robe of Christ's righteousness that covers the Christian in baptism. 
In the ancient church, first three centuries, uh, they would go into the baptismal waters naked. And then they would come up out of the waters and be clothed with a white garment. Now, some of you may remember christening robes. Okay? Again, that was to signify Christ's righteousness. So this goes back to, just like we had last week with the passion of our Lord, how the events themselves, the stuff that happened, like Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Hmm, how curious. He is the seed of the woman who would crush the skull or the head of Satan. So it, there's more to the events than just simply your report when you were in second grade of what you did over the summer. You know, first we went here, and then we went here, and then we went there. The gospel narratives, while reporting historical events, even the very events themselves end up proclaiming the gospel. All right. He said to them, do not be alarmed or afraid. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. All of those points that the angel declares to them are historical events. You seek Jesus of Nazareth. That's where he came from. That's how he was known historically. Who was crucified, his bodily crucifixion upon the cross under Pontius Pilate. He bodily is risen from the dead. That man, Christ Jesus, who is the Son of God, he is risen. He is not here in the place of death. See where they laid him, his body. So I make the point here, do not be afraid he is risen, is the proclamation of forgiveness. It is why Jesus in the upper room, the first words out of his mouth are peace be with you. So I often ask the question, is it possible to have peace with God and our Lord Jesus Christ and not have our sins forgiven? No, it's impossible. If you have peace with God, it means your sins are forgiven and you stand righteous before God and you need not fear the judgment of the law or the condemnation of hell or Satan's accusation. You can tell Satan, no, he is my righteousness. He's died my death. He's paid the price for my sins. Go straight to hell. That's one entity that you can tell to go to hell and you do not sin by doing so. So Christ's absolution is, now I've underlined the word, the word that raises the dead and restores life, which means it reconciles, it brings us back together with God. No social distancing from God. The word of absolution reconciles us to God because it takes away the cause of death and the cause of separation from God, which is our sin. That's why, if you remember... In the upper room, he says, peace be with you. And then he shows him his hands and his side. And again, he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me to do what? To die and to forgive sins. So I send you. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. So holy absolution is the word of resurrection. And if you think about it, if two people are estranged from one another, when I do marital catechesis for couples who are troubled in their marriage, 
So often, at the beginning of such struggle, is you did this, you rotten certain husband, you did this, you rotten wife, and there's this enmity back and forth to get them each to, by a study of God's word, to recognize this is my sin as a husband, or this is my sin as a wife, to bring them, by the grace of God, to confess this is my sin, I am sorry, will you forgive me for Jesus' sake? And then to hear each speak to each other, I forgive you. That brings new life. It brings reconciliation with each other. And it, so to speak, resurrects their marital relationship. So using that as an analogy, but it's more than an analogy, it's a reality, the word of forgiveness is that which bring, brings life where there is death. It restores communion where there is a breach in fellowship. And it is central, absolutely central, to the life of a Christian. And to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we get there, under the Holy Spirit in the creed, there are five things less listed. Holy Christian church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body and life everlasting at the very center is the forgiveness of sins without that there's no holy christian church without the forgiveness of sins for jesus sake there's no communion or fellowship with god or one another but because of the forgiveness of sins there is resurrection of the body and life everlasting it all depends on the forgiveness of sins i can remember dr robert Preuss in my confessions class just just bringing this home to us and how he did it was not only through uh, the, the, the exhortations and applications of the scriptures, but through great Lutheran hymnody. All right. So, reading on with the text. Go tell his disciples, this is verse 7, and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. Why did the angel want the, and the angels acting on God's behalf, want these women to tell the disciples, and why is Peter especially signaled out? Mary. He denied his Lord, and remember, he went out of the courtyard of the high priest weeping bitter tears. Go tell my disciples that he is risen. And he will go before them into Galilee, just as he said. In other words, Peter needs to hear that resurrection word of absolution. It's the only thing that can comfort his troubled conscience and sorrowful heart. So this pastoral concern exhibited in the angel's word for all of the disciples, who all they all ran away and fled, they were all filled with doubts, it wasn't just Peter. Peter was just put in a hard place, you know, and then he's afraid of losing his own life. He denies his Lord. He blasphemes. He sins grievously. But this word through the angel to Peter indicates that not even that sin could damn him unless he were to reject the Lord's forgiveness. Okay. So, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is risen from the dead. As he said to you, it all rests upon the word. And I love verse 8 because it is so realistic. And by realistic, I mean 
when the momentous things of our lives occur. Sometimes uh, there's a sudden death of a loved one, or, or sometimes it's a great joyous event like, uh, you know, the Cubs winning the World Series after 108 years of futility. I just remember that November night, I really couldn't believe that it had happened. Did it really happen? Now that's a trivial thing, absolutely trivial. But when you, when you see how the emotions work, you can understand uh, this verse. They went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This, this idea of overwhelming joy, incredible belief that you can't believe something has happened, and it results in this paralysis of speech. All right. When he rose early... Now, verse 9 and following gives us a, uh, a summary of the resurrection appearances that are recorded in the other Gospels. When he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. That's the Apostle John's account. Great detail on Mary Magdalene. And John's account, remember at the beginning of John's gospel, he emphasizes Genesis. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were made through him. And think about how did sin enter the world, but when the serpent tempted Eve, that first woman, and Adam did nothing to stop it, here the first one to witness the resurrection is Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She had been, shall we say, under the spell of the demonic, but was delivered by the Lord. So no wonder, just as sin entered the world through that first woman and her eating of the tree and giving it to Adam, now the word that brings new life into the world rather than death is first given to a woman, Mary Magdalene. She went out and told those that they had, uh, who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Notice how many do not believe in this section. So the disciples don't believe the testimony of Mary. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. That's from Luke's gospel, those disciples walking from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. They didn't recognize him. But then he was revealed to them, not coincidentally, in the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper. He catechized them on that whole journey some of you have heard me say, if I could go back to a Bible story and be a part of it, that would be the one. Because there, Jesus opened up the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. And then he was made known to those disciples in the breaking of the bread. Verse 13, they went and told it to the rest in the upper room, but they did not believe them either. They don't believe the testimony of Mary Magdalene, or the women. They don't believe the testimony of these Emmaus disciples. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven. That was Easter night. Thomas wasn't with them. As they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, 
because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. How does that take place? We would be inaccurate if we hear the word rebuke and think that he is scolding them. When you look at all four gospel resurrection narratives, he rebukes unbelief by saying such things as, peace be with you. And then when they're afraid, which is coming from sinful unbelief, he says again, peace be with you. So how he rebukes their unbelief is not by saying, Wally, shame on you for not believing. How dare you? Get out of my sight. I'm through with you. No, instead he says, I forgive you. Your sins are forgiven. What a testimony of salvation entirely by God's grace as a gift and not by works. Because those disciples, they were trembling behind closed doors, and he appears in the midst and he says, I forgive you. That word rebukes unbelief and calls for faith. That's why we have such things as private absolution when a Christian is particularly troubled by sin, by doubts, by fears, to hear that word of forgiveness applied especially to them strengthens faith, restores faith against the doubts of the flesh. Okay, so, do not be afraid. He is risen as the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. This is how, this is how it is rebuked. And in point E, I say, by Christ's forgiveness, unbelief is rebuked and faith is restored and that's the central feature of baptism, absolution and the preaching and teaching of the gospel. I mean, it's my objective more than anything else to strengthen your faith or your reliance or your dependence upon Christ at these sessions so that you go away without being afraid of death in the sure and certain confidence of salvation in Christ. And then finally in the absolution there. So look at what happens Afterward, he appeared to the eleven, as, uh, as they sat at table, sorry, verse 15. And he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. What I find so fascinating about Mark's sequencing here is, as soon as their unbelief is rebuked by his forgiveness, now he says, go preach the gospel. So the very gospel that they needed to hear of the Lord's forgiveness that would restore their faith, is now the very gospel that they're called to preach to every creature. That means it's all over the creation. And the promise of baptism, he who believes in Christ and is baptized into Christ will be saved. He who does not believe in Christ will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. Notice, in the signs there is implicit victory promised over Satan, sin, and death. In my name, they will cast out demons. They're Satan. They will speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover from death. So I make the point here, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. From the position 
of authority at God's right hand, Jesus' ministry restores life with God and gives victory over Satan, the demons, sin and death, deadly poison, by the laying on of hands, the word of Christ's forgiveness has been applied to sinners through the absolution and the sacraments since the time of Jesus. You read the gospel, notice how many times people come to Jesus asking him to lay hands on the sick. Now, it's not the laying on of hands that is disconnected from the word of Jesus. It's always the laying on of hands connected to the word of Jesus. That's why in the liturgy, it says for the pastor at a baptism that he is to lay his hands on the candidate and pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because that's what's going to happen in the baptism. In the absolution, the pastor is to lay the hands on the head of the penitent and say, Polly, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. So this is, this is uh, 2,000 years of practice from Jesus' ministry to the ministry of the apostles, the significance of the hands. And so you have that here in the signs of the resurrection. Uh, yesterday afternoon, uh, a few of us gathered to sing to Carl Dewey, who is um, not long for this world, and uh, I don't know if you could see, Polly, you were there, but I laid my hands on his head, and I absolved him of his sins, and I said, Carl, receive the sign of the Holy Cross that marks you as one redeemed by Christ the crucified, a sign made at his baptism on his forehead and upon his heart, and now made again in the absolution and then we prayed the Lord's Prayer with the hands on the head. So this, uh, you could say, it's to use language that the catechism uses elsewhere. It's not the laying on of hands indeed that does it, but the word of God in and with the laying on of hands. So it doesn't apply to anybody else but you when the hand goes on the, goes on the head. So these signs, back to the Mark text, accompany those who believe as the ministry of the gospel and sacraments is applied. And at the heart of that ministry is the forgiveness of sins. So what happens here in, in verse 19, so then after the Lord had spoken to them and they would carry out their ministry according to the Lord's word, what he had mandated, spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So that's why the note makes reference to the position of authority. When we talk about ascension of our Lord, it is not about geographic location. It is about movement from the position of humiliation, where he humbles himself to the point of death, to the position of being exalted to the Father's right hand, the position of power. Why? Because he had faithfully done what the Father had sent him to do. So 
when a king ascends the throne to become king, we're not talking about the geographic location of the seat called the throne. We're talking about the translation, if you will, or transition of the king from prince to king. So also with the ascension of our Lord. Um, he became obedient, St. Paul says in Philippians, taking on the form of a servant, being like, made in the likeness of sinful man, and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God the Father highly exalted him. That's ascension. Highly exalted him and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reign of his kingdom is the reign of faith by the gift of the Holy Spirit in the hearts, which the preaching of the gospel and absolution and the holy sacraments convey. So that's how his kingdom comes. That's why under the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, Luther emphasizes God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit. On that night of his resurrection, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. When he gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace we believe, he rebuked their unbelief by his word. See how that all ties together. Wally? Well, yeah, uh, perfumed oil, called uh, chrism oil, um, was often used in the ancient church's liturgy of baptism as a symbol for the Holy Spirit. And so that when you administer to the sick and visit the sick, the baptized faithful, you'd use that oil again, like I used with uh, Carl yesterday making the sign of the cross. And for adults in particular, the memory of the aroma that they received as adult converts at their baptism then was triggered by the use of that anointing oil for the sick. But, yep, symbol of the Spirit. With the uh, mercy, you mentioned that the Lord the ascension before he left and he admonished them and rebuked them. And then when some people look at this and say, well, if we um, believe, then Yeah, go and preach the gospel to every creature, out of which comes faith. He who believes and is baptized and shall be sign. saved. And then signs. Yes, the signs that accompanied the apostles did exactly what you're saying. They showed the authority of the apostles, which had been given them by Jesus, to do these things. And in the early church, book of Acts, a dramatic thing, taking the gospel to the Gentiles was a huge thing, and the signs accompanied that as well. Okay? Polly? But the resurrection is still part of Jesus' exaltation. Yes, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Okay? Right. Now, if you turn over to the back side, a couple of highlights from the apostolic witness or catechesis to the resurrection and the linkage between the crucifixion and the resurrection, which we had talked about earlier. I... 
I pulled out from the book of Romans and then one passage from 1 Corinthians and put them all there for you so you wouldn't have to page around to highlight certain things. The first five verses are all from Romans 5. Verse 9 says, Having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Justified means declared righteous by his blood. So the blood of Christ is the commodity by which we are declared righteous, which means our sins are utterly and totally forgiven. Okay? So we are justified by his blood. And if so, then we are saved from God's wrath. You know, the day you eat of it, you will die. Verse 10, we were reconciled. There's that word, brought back. Reconciled to God through the death of his son. That's why there's life. Because through his death, we are, sin is taken away that reconciles us to the son, uh, to, the, to the father. Verse 12, just as through one man sin entered into the world, who's that guy? Adam. And death through sin. Notice how sin is emphasized as the cause of death, and thus death spread to all men. Therefore, verse 18, as through one man's offense, namely Adam's transgression, turning away from God's word that gave life, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act. Who is that one man? Christ. And the righteous act is his faithful and obedient suffering unto death. Through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in, there's the word justification again, justification of life. We're declared righteous and therefore we live. If we're under condemnation, we die, we're separated from God. But where we are justified, we live. Verse 19, for by one man's disobedience, there Adam again, Many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now the many is not to be confused as the idea that not everybody is a sinner. Everybody is. It's just the idea from the one, this happened to the many. And from the one, this happened to the many. By the one, the many were made sinners. By the one, the many will be made righteous. And finally, 1 Corinthians 15 for since by man came death, again, there's Adam, by man, namely Christ Jesus, the Son of God in the flesh, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, you know, he became a sinner and he died, separation from God. Even so in Christ, the second Adam, by his obedient sacrifice, all shall be made alive. So what those passages do that I just wanted to review quickly in succession for you is to see this linkage between Adam and Jesus, sin as the cause of death, therefore forgiveness of sins by Jesus' death is the cause and source of life. That's why you can never separate the resurrection of Jesus or your resurrection from the death of Christ that made payment for your sin. Now in point number six, we have all of this comes to summary fashion that we've discussed in the second article of the creed itself 
and its explanation. So if we, as we've been doing, focusing on the second article in four historical parts, incarnation, crucifixion, number two, and now three, resurrection and ascension, next Monday, second coming. Uh, so we've highlighted those parts from the creed itself. So he descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Now, Polly, the descent into hell is the beginning of the exaltation. And we didn't look at Ephesians 4 or 1 Peter 3, which speak of uh, the descent into hell. It is not to suffer. He suffered the condemnation of hell in his death upon the cross. That was finished. It is finished when he gave up the Holy Spirit. No, the descent into hell is, let's use the uh, Chicago Cubs World Series victory again, when several million people lined all of Grant Park and all of the streets from Wrigley Field down to the center of, uh, uh, of Chicago there, what was it? It was a victory parade. So our Lord's exaltation is that, just like we had quoted from Philippians, God the Father gave him the name that is above every name, that every knee should bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth. So he goes into hell, descent into hell to proclaim victory over Satan and over all those who had rejected him. And then that continues. So he descended into hell. It's the beginning of his exaltation. The third day he rose again from the dead and they saw him bodily and he ascended into heaven. He is at the Father's right hand, which we just saw from Mark chapter 16 and sits at the right hand. It's the position of authority over Satan, sin, and death for the sake of his church. So it might seem as if the church looks more like a scullery maid or she's being beaten up by the world. Don't be deceived by appearances. The church in this world always looks a little beat up. The church suffering. But our Lord is at the Father's right hand. He has all things under control. Now from the explanation we've got, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord. We've been repeating that. That's the main clause. Remember the first, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, also true man born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. So the main clause, I believe that Jesus is my Lord. That runs throughout. We're talking about the incarnation, he's my Lord. Crucifixion, he's my Lord. Resurrection and ascension, he is my Lord. Why? Did he redeem you with his holy precious blood from last week that I may be his own? Because he's redeemed you with his blood, you don't belong to Satan. Think about that. I don't belong to Satan. I belong to Jesus, son of God, who has redeemed me with his holy precious blood. How about that? I belong to him. And I live under him in his kingdom, which is not an oppressive kingdom, like Satan's kingdom is, where there's fear. It is a kingdom of freedom, 
and joy. Serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, which refers to the righteousness of Christ. How can we be certain, just as he has risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity? The resurrection proclaims Christ's death as the source of life. It is why St. Paul and the apostles are so vigorous. How can some of you say there is no resurrection? If there is no resurrection, then Christ is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins. And then your faith is stupid. It's futile. It's empty. But now Christ is risen from the dead. Okay? So you can't preach the gospel faithfully unless you are preaching the historical death of Christ and the historical bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. Because he lives, we shall live also, and no sickness, disease, death, suffering, sorrow, hardship can destroy us. That's pretty awesome stuff. All right, we covered the descent into hell and the resurrection as terms. Justification to be declared righteous for Jesus' sake. And we've talked about the ascension of the Lord. The right hand of God the Father is the position of authority. Any other questions here? Larry. Are there any people, uh, uh, people in Ah, yeah, the word again, he rose again, the, it applies to life. If you look in, like in Revelation, he who is dead, died, and he is alive again. That's where the again comes from. This doesn't mean like he had two resurrections or something like that. Sure, sure. I mean, in that sense, right. He was, that's right, because he was alive, and he died, and now he's alive again. Right, good. Any other questions? Did that take care of that, Polly, for you? Oh, yeah. In the liturgy of Holy Communion, please note, I will be using the proper preface before the Sanctus for the resurrection of our Lord, as well as the prayer uh, associated with the Lord's Prayer as part of the, uh, from the resurrection. Even though we are Advent, I want you to see the connections with our lesson, but also if you think about Advent, come Lord Jesus. We're talking about he who was crucified and died, who now lives again, never to die again. And we are waiting for his bodily appearance. He doesn't stop being the Son of God in human flesh. He is eternally conceived and born of the Virgin, suffered and rose again from the dead.
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities, with which I have ever offended you, and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them, and sincerely repent of them, and I pray you of your boundless mercy, and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you invite all who are burdened with sin to come to you for rest. We now come at your invitation to the heavenly feast, which you have provided for your children on earth, giving us to eat of your body and drink of your blood, Preserve us from impenitence and unbelief. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness and clothe us with the righteousness purchased with your blood. Strengthen our faith, increase our love and hope, and assure us a place at your heavenly table where we will eat eternal manna and drink of the river of your pleasure forever. Hear us, Jesus, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. And also Lift up your hearts. We give to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God. And most especially are we bound to praise you for the glorious resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, the very Passover Lamb, who was sacrificed for us and bore the sins of the world. By his dying he has destroyed death, and by his rising again, he has restored to us everlasting life. Therefore, with Mary Magdalene, Peter, and John, and with all the witnesses of the resurrection, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. By his death he has redeemed us from bondage to sin and death. And by his resurrection he has delivered us into new life in him. Grant us to keep the feast in sincerity and truth, faithfully eating his body given into death and drinking his life's blood poured out for our salvation until we pass through death to the promised land of life eternal. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. Please come forward in groups of about ten.
the body of Christ given for you. 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 The blood of Christ shed 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 for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. body of Christ given for you the 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 body of Christ given for you
O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor, that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith to life everlasting and deliver us from every fear of sin, Satan, and death. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.